Welcome to PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. I'm Jim Hohen, Central Pennsylvania Regional President of PNC Bank. Alongside me is my co-host, Nell McCormick-Abom. Well, thanks, Jim. It's so great to be here. PNC C-Speak, the language of executives, is a podcast that features local executives talking about relevant and timely business topics. This knowledge-sharing platform showcases leaders with forward-thinking approaches that disrupt the status quo and cause us to think differently. Well, we're delighted. Our guest today is Dr. Neely Bendapudi, president of the Pennsylvania State University. Dr. Bendapudi, an accomplished scholar, imaginative problem solver, and leader known for her student-centric approach, began her tenure as the 19th president of the Pennsylvania State University on May 9th of this year. Previously, Neely served as president of the University of Louisville. She is a dedicated educator, researcher, and business executive with nearly 30-year career spanning higher education and the corporate sector. She leads Penn State's 24-campus network and top-ranked online world campus with a focus on advancing excellence and creating opportunities for students, faculty, and staff to thrive. Neely, welcome to C-Speak. Thank you so very much. I'm truly honored and humbled to join you today. Well, my first question is, you came from the University of Louisville, obviously a great position, and I'm just curious, what drew you to Penn State? Uh, That's a wonderful question. I'll be honest, when I was first approached by Penn State, I had said no, not because of Penn State, but I felt I had much more to do at Louisville, which I truly enjoyed. But I'm so grateful that they were persistent and asked me to look at it. And honestly, Jim, the more I looked at it, it is like, oh, wow, I cannot pass up this opportunity because the truth is there's no other university like Penn State in the whole country. Now, the two of you might roll your eyes and say, hey, I bet (laughs) if we invited any university president, they would talk about their university the same way. But this is C-Speak, so I will cut to the chase and tell you why. Uh, We are the only land-grant university that has the breadth that we do, meaning that... um, 96% of the citizens of this Commonwealth of Pennsylvania are within 30 miles of one of my locations. And so the opportunity to really influence as a land-grant university an entire state was honestly too exciting to pass up. And we are rather unique in that. And the very breadth that I talk about means that the three things a land-grant university is supposed to do access and affordability through higher education, being part and parcel of the economic development of the Commonwealth and doing research that has an impact like ripple effects from the Commonwealth to the country and beyond. It turned out to be an opportunity that I could not pass up and I'm so grateful to be here. Well, we're delighted that you're here, and we, we want to talk a little bit more about that and, and get into uh, both your leadership style as well as some of the issues that, that you're facing. Um, you've, we've heard in the past that you know, you've referred to your, yourself as a temporary custodian of a great institution. Can you speak a little bit about the balancing of being innovative but still being respectful of tradition and legacy? My goodness, you really did do your research, sir. You get an A-plus from me. That is true. I have believed firmly 
that in any leadership position, if it's in your church group, if it's in your family, or as I am privileged to do to be heading up a university, we have to remember that the institution is more important than any one of us. The mission matters more. So, you know, it's that old adage of leave it better than you found it, that every one of us, when we steps into a leadership role, must really look at the mission and say, how do we strengthen it? And that's the humility and sense of responsibility that I hope I will demonstrate to people over time. You know, when you look at your resume, which is quite impressive, you have teaching positions, which you've done in marketing, University of Kansas, Ohio State University, obviously Louisville. But then you've also had key leadership roles, C-suite roles in places like, obviously, Louisville, Kansas. And then also in banking, you have a career in banking uh, where you were a vice president at a major bank. You also do consulting work, marketing work for a lot of different companies. You have a doctorate in marketing. Uh, You've worked with Procter & Gamble, AIG, U.S. Army. So I'm throwing a lot of that out at you to give our audience an idea of the scope of the kind of things you've done in your career. And now here you are heading Penn State. One of the things that's important is clearly you have developed leadership skills and skills that other people in major institutions recognize and they want you on the team. But as you critically look at yourself, what is the key to your effectiveness, at least so far in your career? Uh, thank you for that. I very, very much appreciate it. Oftentimes, before I get into um, some of the leadership philosophies I've developed now, is being executive vice president of, at the time, a bank with about $55 billion in assets was a wonderful learning experience for me. And when it says marketing professor, many people might think I only consulted on a brand or a slogan. Really, my work is customer experience. And so I really tried to put the lens, try to wear the lens of how are we serving the different constituencies? Are we be true to our mission? In addition to my consulting, I was very, very fortunate to have in-depth leadership experiences. I will call out one, the International Women's Forum. And this is an incredible leadership experience. And I was a fellow of IWF. And being part of, I think, 27 women from 18 different countries had a, a huge impact on me, you know, being able to be in that cohort. I think what I've learned by working with C with CEOs or CMOs or CXOs, whoever they were, working with boards and C-suites at a variety of different companies, I've learned some things that I hope I bring to bear. One is that the Lone Ranger leader sounds like a great myth, but it's just that. It's just a myth that we are only as strong as the teams we build. So I try to be very, very thoughtful about building strong teams making sure that they are very complementary, making sure that we stay true to the mission, that we keep coming back to what are we supposed to do and are we staying true to that mission uh, makes sense to me. And really, I do try. Nell, I don't say that I'm always successful, but every meeting to say whose voices are not at the table. How do we make sure we're listening to different constituencies and, of course, walking the talk? 
Well, obviously, that's really important. And the, the follow-up that I really wanted to ask you, because you mentioned the Women's Forum, but yet you bristle if if the introduction of you includes that you're the first woman, the first person of color to lead Penn State University. And you say instead, you like to talk about it as non-normative leadership. Explain that what, what that means for our listeners and why that's a crucial difference for you. Uh, I have become much more comfortable with it now, the older I get, because everywhere I've been quite candidly, uh, because of the roles I've held and because I've been in business, uh, whether in inside a university or outside, women full professors of business are not that many. Candidly, right. if you look at assistant associate full. And so everywhere I would be introduced as the first woman, the first person of color, the first immigrant. And early on, what would bother me is I would worry that people would think I got picked because of any of those. It was that I am the best person for the job. But now, increasingly, as I see it means a lot to people, I try not to be as not to bristle at it as much. But you're right. I try to focus people on the challenges that non-normative leaders face. So let us say you are in an industry where it's predominantly women and you're the one male leader. You will face the same challenges or similar challenges, not the same, obviously. When you have a non-normative leader like me, I'm definitely not the norm. You look at old Maine and you look at the pictures of the 18 presidents that have gone before me. I certainly look nothing like them. The dilemma there is that if you're good, yep, fine, you get the kudos. But when you're bad or you don't do something right, you get judged a lot more harshly. So I try to talk to people about what are our norms? How are we expecting leadership to show up? And if we think there's only one model of leadership, we are all depriving ourselves of the talents that come from every walk of life and every set of life experiences. You also have talked about glass cliffs for folks <laughs> like yourself, non-normative leaders. They say the glass cliffs are the edges are all around us, but they're transparent. You don't know exactly where they are. <laughs> yeah, Neely, right? can you explain that a little bit in terms of you know the whole concept of glass ceiling, but also as you've talked about the glass cliff and in sure. in, in looking for talent and and sometimes how people may even have to be a little bit better or on guard or there's certain there's certain there's certain um, just environmental factors that may come into play. Yeah. So um, I I very tied to the non-normative leader, as you know. So my whole point is we need many, many, many more diverse leaders so that you don't have just like one idea of what it means to be a female leader. If you had many, you could say, oh, I could pick any path I want. The glass ceiling is a concept that people are familiar with, as you know. The glass cliff is, again, a metaphor. It's not perfect. But the idea is that many times, and research uh, has shown that Non-normative leaders tend to get picked when the situation is very difficult. So if things are going hunky-dory, everything is going really well, then the default seems to be, let's pick someone just like the person that we had before. And the problem with the glass cliff idea or a woman or a person of color being selected for particularly challenging environments is, are we giving them an even playing field? So if you pick a non-normative leader for a particularly difficult situation 
and then say, see, they didn't do so well. So it's more a cautionary tale that for our business leaders who actually understand the business bottom line value of diversity, make sure that when you're creating those leadership opportunities, you're not tapping non-normative leaders only when situations are particularly challenging. I'm going to follow, uh, change gears a little bit here, but it actually it, it actually dovetails nicely with a sense of having diverse thought and talents. But you know, certainly Penn State is a very broad uh, university with many constituents, and it's not hierarchical in its nature. You know, certainly there's leaders. So I'm I'm curious as how do you create the common sense of purpose to to drive all the constituencies and all the diverse talents and viewpoints, how do you create that sense of common purpose? Uh, I think we have to work at it every single day. We have to recruit our people every single day. As you know, as well as I do, in all of our organizations, there's a sense of a discretionary effort. There's a big difference between the minimum that someone will do to avoid getting fired and the <laughs> maximum amount of passion and energy and engagement they bring to the job. That delta is the discretionary effort. How do we tap into it? You are right. Penn State is a very complex organization. We're an $8.6 billion enterprise, but based on where you participate, are you a faculty member? Are you a staff member? Are you an alum? Do you deal with us through extension, through our research enterprise? You see one little piece of it, or if it's athletics, any one of those, you see one part of the institution. The good news is overall in higher education, there is a, a sense of purpose that we are changing lives every single day. We are transforming lives through education. It's there, but I would be lying if I said it's easy. The tough job is when you're trying to balance multiple constituencies and candidly some of the financial challenges that we are facing at Penn State, whatever decision you make will not be uniformly pleasing to all of your constituencies. And that's why you say I'm saying you earn trust every day. As any good leader, all you can hope for is the time and your proven record will give people that uh, trust and that you earn that over time. <laughs> You mentioned something. You mentioned about building team and sense of, of of commonality by by being in the teamwork by being something bigger than yourself. Right. Can you explain what some of those items within Penn State may be that as you try to draw folks together together for the common purpose? Uh, absolutely. I I sincerely believe that all of us as human beings have an innate need to belong to something larger than ourselves. Uh, that is, we want our lives to have meaning, to have purpose. Uh, think about how we celebrate a sense of family or when our sports team wins or when you have that feeling around Thanksgiving of being with your family. So Penn State, uh, as you said, is such a large institution. But the reason I say temporary custodian of great institutions is Look at our roots. We go back to 1855. I look out at Mount Nittany and remind myself that so many people have come here and what ties them all together is that we are spirit. At Penn State, no matter where you are in the world, what is that? The we are is, in my mind, whoever you are, however you contribute, whether you're a 
fifth generation scion stepping on to Penn State or the first one in your family to go to college, when you are here at Penn State, you are part of Penn State and Penn State belongs to you just as much as it does to anyone else. Well, I give you a a lot of credit for spending so much of your career in academia and in the academe world, because it is rife with a diversity of opinion, uh, diversity of personalities, and very loud voices on every side. I'm curious, too, both at Louisville and even at Penn State, you run into conflict. And uh, even they don't give you a honeymoon, right? When you're the president of the university, you step right into the muck sometimes. And whether it's of uh, creation prior to your arrival or while it's while you're there, you have to deal with really contentious issues, freedom of academic thought, and people on both sides of sort of that First Amendment issue. And then you have the racial diversity questions and a country coming together and understanding that our demographics are changing. You have all those things sort of coming together on the campus, too, and they can be lightning rods for division and contention. And I'm wondering, as you're in the midst of this as a leader, how do you approach conflict resolution and that common purpose to unite and resolve problems in an amicable way and a decisive way that will lead to progress? Uh, Those are great questions. I'll do my best. Um, I would strongly encourage for your listeners a, a, a concept that I find very powerful It comes out of the Harvard Negotiation Project. It's an oldie but goodie, the idea of the house of conflict, that when we have a conflict about anything, that really think of it as the house of conflict having three rooms. I'll I'll step away from it because we don't have enough time to to really (laughs) delve into it. But one part of it is knowing that some of the arguments are about facts. People have different, you know, don't have access to the same set of facts. So sometimes we are arguing over things, we're arguing over cross purposes, and our facts may not align. The second part of the house is the feelings. Uh, How does our own emotions come into play in a very, very big way? And we just have to acknowledge them and talk about them. But really, the heart of the conflict is a sense of identity. You're questioning who I am or what I am or what I stand for. But let's get back to the free speech on campus. I This is a tough, tough thing, but a lot of people don't realize that we are a public institution. We're a state-affiliated institution, and therefore we do abide by the Supreme Court's rulings on what it means to provide freedom of thought and academic freedom on a campus. Recently, we had a uh, student organization. So let me clarify whose freedom we're protecting, whose freedom of speech. It's the freedom of speech of our student groups. Every student group, if you're a registered student group, they have a right to express their opinion. And we need to be content neutral in terms of who we bring. We could certainly have a robust discussion around changing policies that impact everybody But we, uh, again, talk to your constitutional law experts or, you know, we we have a lot of experts that have spoken out and said, hold on, this was not an invitation from Penn State. This was even made well before I got here. But this is not an invitation from Penn State. This is an invitation from a group of our students. And um, I do think that as abhorrent as certain views might be, uh, people are also not, 
don't always know that hate speech is actually protected under free speech. Uh, I know it sounds terrible because a lot of students will ask me, why are we allowing such and such speech? Um, and so that's one part of it. I do think that as a university, we need to stand up and talk about what we value and what our beliefs are and not be reactive. We need to be having those messages of unity. When we say we are, it's everybody. No matter who you are, we are going to bring you in. So I wish I had a magic pill (laughs) of how this would be resolved. But part of it is facts. Part of it is the law. Part of it is, I think I just need to build that trust with these communities. On the second aspect, uh, I definitely, I've talked, I've been very proactive in talking about higher education has to be part of the solution in the racial, but you know, it's not just racial, as you know, it could be gender, it could be disabilities, a lot of things, but we cannot move away from the fundamental problem of the racist divide that is existing and how do we bring people together. What I am trying to do, and I just need to figure out how to communicate it even better, is too many universities, too many institutions do a checklist of our inputs. This is what we are doing. I'm actually changing that. And I went to the board and said, let us make sure we're actually moving the needle. Like in a business, you don't get a pass for I tried this, 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 you're going to be held accountable for. Well, did that actually make a difference? So just FYI, I am tackling this head on. Uh, Penn State is not unique in this. The graduation rates for our Black students, four and six year graduation rates, are abysmal compared to the graduation rates of their white counterparts. I'm saying one metric we're going to hold ourselves accountable to is why does that exist? Because the worst thing is for a student to start here and then fail. So the four diversity um, goals that I am embracing that I'll be held accountable to, fixing the graduation rate gap, making sure we have diversity of faculty at every level and across all disciplines, equitable uh, professional development opportunities for staff, and finally looking at our belonging scores and saying, where are the gaps? Who feels like they belong and who feels they're not being fully supported? Thanks for letting me finish that. Absolutely. Thank you for your insights there. Dr. Bendapudi, I'm I'm very curious, you know, we're at the start of your tenure, but, you know, five or 10 years down the road, what do you hope people are saying about you and about Penn State uh, as a higher education institution um, and the changes that have taken place? Um, what I would like them to say about Penn State is, number one, for all of our students that they say Penn State has the most employable, most highly sought after students for talent anywhere. That if you want to hire, you go to Penn State because they have the best students. I want us to be growing our research enterprise. What we do here is remarkable. And for everyone, so if you are in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania as a company, nonprofit, the legislature, the executive branch, that you look to us as the the exemplar of what a great land-grant university should be. And of course, I have my DEI goals that I've already shared with you. I want the DEIB. Uh, If we can do those and fix our um, 
financial model so that we are sustainable, we are accessible, we are affordable, we are not out of reach, then I will feel very vindicated. And if I achieve those, then I leave it to people to decide how they will judge me. Bottom line, I want the results uh, to sh- talk, speak for themselves. And, and I'd be remiss if I, did, if I didn't come back to a line that uh, I know you are data-driven. And yes. Can, can you speak to your line that I, I know I'm so fond of with regard to data? <laughs> Oh, only if you promise you won't keep saying Dr. Bendapudi. Okay. I told you it's nearly to you. My students must call me President Bendapudi or Dr. Bendapudi until I tell them otherwise, because, you know, hey, I want them to know how to navigate the work world. Yeah, I only half jokingly say, in God we trust, but everybody else bring me data. <laughs> and so all I'm trying to do is to say, I don't want to do a check mark that's virtue signaling and saying, hey, we're doing this and that. Let's hold each other accountable to whether we are really making a difference. Well, that'll have to be our last word. We want to thank you, Neely, for sharing your insights with us today. And we wish you all good things at Penn State. I'm Nell McCormack-Avon. I'm Jim Hohen, and this is PNCC Speak, the language of executives. Our guest today was Dr. Neely Bendapudi, the 19th president of Pennsylvania State University. And we thank you, our listeners, for joining us. You can find more episodes of C-Speak at witf.org slash C-Speak and on your favorite podcast platforms. Until next time. <laughs>